Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Nana Visitor from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. If you like what we're serving here at the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way, and by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today, audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I'd say we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, where we're going, we don't need Rose. I've got a bad feeling about it. But we want to start out the show by thanking our Patreon supporters, James Husband, Mike Crate, Mark Fopan, and Remy Levatoire. Thank you so much for supporting us. Just a few of the many Patreon supporters out there. If you like what we're serving up here at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And we, of course, as you know, have a very special guest, Trek Yoda himself, Dayton Ward. Hey guys, how you doing? We are fantastic. Fantastic. It's great to have you on, Dayton. Yeah, good to, good to have you on. It's been a while. It has been. Now, I do have a question. Have you listened to your own audiobook? Uh, only samples of it. I've listened to, you know bits and pieces uh you know specific scenes just because i wanted to hear how it translated to the format but i haven't sat and listened to the entire thing right right well very good i haven't listened to it either i just saw it was available up there and we're talking to you and you know hence the plug but but very cool yeah yeah now have um is it mostly your trek books that get you, you do audio that you get audio audio narration for, or do you do you have some of your own books with that you have audio audio books? Uh, none of my original. Fi- well, uh, that's a multi layered question. None of my original novels have been given any audio treatment, and the Star Trek audios are a relatively recent thing. I mean, they used to do them all the time in the eighties and nineties, and then they kind of slacked off. And then they've made a comeback in recent years, and they started doing them back in 2016 with the 50th anniversary trilogy that we all collaborated on. And then I've had – in addition to that book for the trilogy, I've had two Next Generation books adapted for audio and then the most recent one, the Discovery novel. Right. Very good. And then – Outside of Trek, um, they did an audiobook version of of an anthology I contributed a story to for Predator called If It Bleeds. That's the name of the anthology that came out last fall. And it's That's all new Predator stories. I know, right? <laughs> and uh, and they, what was cool about that one was they got a different reader for each story in the anthology. So 16 different audiobook narrators you know, for each awesome. of the stories. That's awesome. And then uh, then uh, I did another short story for a smaller press for an anthology all where all the stories were based on Rush songs or inspired by Rush songs. Uh, called 2113 and again they had uh, uh, different readers for each of those stories oh that's fantastic yeah it was pretty cool and are they all available up in audible everything is available on audible okay good good i see they're just releasing actually in a couple days of releasing the german version of your book on audible 
Oh, was that right? Now that yeah. one I haven't kept on. Yeah, on. well, you know, you you have to listen to those special scenes oh, in German. That's true. Yeah, that's right. They have German editions of the, of some of the books that are that never got U.S. audiobook versions or English audiobook versions, I should say. They did the Vanguard books, I yeah, think. Yeah, I see. I see Vanguard Seven here and Vanguard Six and Vanguard Four. Right. Yeah, I don't know if they did any of the other ones. Well, like they have Star, or or Star Trek Discovery Two, which I assume is your uh, drastic mm-hmm. measures. I won't butcher yeah, my fine. German. But. <laughs> yeah, but well, cool. I read, I read Jurassic Measure State. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. That was a very interesting book to write. Yeah. <laughs> very, very challenging book to write. Uh, well, since you kind of brought it up, what made Jurassic Measures for you? This was a follow-up novel to David Mack's book, right? Um, it's not connected to Dave's book. I mean, it's a they're they're both prequels, but they're not connected to each other. Okay, you can read so, them independently from one another. so only in that they followed up, it followed up the release, but not the storyline. Right. Yeah. They're both set, they're both uh, prequels to the show, so they each take place prior to what you saw in the first season of Discovery. Dave's book takes place less than a year before the first episode, and mine takes place ten years before the first episode. Okay. So uh, and we're not connected at all. I mean, his book focuses more on Michael Burnham and uh, Captain Giorgio and the Shenzhou uh, team up with Captain Pike and the Enterprise at that point in time. And mine is set, you know, ten years prior to the events of the of the show and twenty years before the original series, even. Okay. So yeah, we were we were. It was an interesting challenge to write because while I was writing my book, they were still developing the show. And filming the show and figuring out what they wanted to do with the show in terms of I mean, they had they had most everything figured out the big the big beats. But, you know, they were they would refine scripts throughout. So every once in a while, I might get a note saying, well, all right, we're going to do this now. So keep that in mind. OK. So, and yeah, uh, a, would that impact then what you were writing? Did you have to go back and rewrite portions because of um, that? very, very mild? I mean, it was I I set up I set it so far ahead of or, you know before the show for a reason just to avoid this as much as possible <laughs> right but every once in a while they would throw me a, a, a you know a, they would throw a curveball at me but it was it was easily taken care of uh, right. i had plenty of time to figure it all out and they helped me uh navigate that that potential minefield it was it was fun because i got to work with kirsten Beyer, who's a you know a star trek novelist in her own right and oh, also yeah, works in the writer's room on the show so right um it was fun. How uh, how closely were you were, were you abreast as far as what were the uh, what where, where the show was going? Did you have access to scripts, or was it more just here's the overall here's the overall all arching ideas for the show as you were writing your book? I knew everything. <laughs> uh, I got to read the scripts. I got to see uh, even before the show started filming. I was able to. They gave us access to pro- production art. And concept art, and then as they started filming, we would get all the scripts and all the revisions of the scripts. So you know, there might be ten to fifteen different revisions of an episode script before it finally was locked. You know, once and for all. And then uh, they would also send us um, set photography. So you know, we got to see still photos from each day's shooting. And occasionally, on an as-needed basis, I might get access to audio or video, depending on the specific question I may have had. Okay. Uh, but as you might imagine, everything was was very controlled and very, uh, you know, it was lock and key. And I was under NDAs for 
the better part of two years while I was writing the book. Yeah. And, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was, uh, but I mean, you know, it was, they, they wanted to, they wanted to keep some surprises for the folks who were going to be watching the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I did my best to keep my mouth shut yeah. and not spoil anything accidentally. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even tell anybody I was, I had signed a contract to write the book over a year before they announced it at Vegas last year. Wow. So, yeah. I, I had, so for a year I'm walking around my mouth shut. Well, <laughs> How hard, how hard was that for you? The show's going to <laughs> yeah. All the crazy theories about what the show was going to be and where it was going to take place and who it was going to involve. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. But that had to be, I mean, you've been such a fan of Trek for so long. There, there had to be something about the fanboy in you that was so stoked about being kind of in the know like you were. I was totally nerding out because um, even before... I was offered the the contract for the book. Um, Kirsten would call me on in you know irregular occasions, infrequent occasions, and pick my brain about this, that, or the other. And I had no idea where this was leading. You know, I mean, I knew that they were she was picking my brain because they were developing the show, but I had no idea at that point what the story was going to be about or anything like that. Wow! So she'd ask me about this little bit of Star Trek trivia, and then you know a week or two later, I might get another call from her, and there'd be this little bit of Star Trek trivia question. And so I started trying to connect dots, you know, and uh, she wouldn't confirm or deny anything. Of course not. It's her heart because I wasn't under NDA yet. So uh, she spilled nothing to me prior to my being brought into what I jokingly called the cone of silence. The cone of silence. Which is like that thing they put on your dog when you take him to the vet. Right. And he's not allowed to lick his paws or whatever. Right. That's what I wore for like a year. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, So. Was that hard for you to kind of keep it quiet, or was it pretty easy? It was pretty easy. I mean, there were times when I wanted to, 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 I mean, I didn't even tell my wife. I told my wife little bits and stuff, you know, but I, uh, Kevin uh, didn't, you know, he he did not push or pry or cajole or whatever to get me to reveal anything. And I had told him, I says, I don't want to tell you anything because I want to spoil it for you so he uh he was very gracious and not pestering me about it <laughs> but every once in a while i would spill a little something because i'd have trouble working through a plot point and i needed another voice i need somebody to bounce it off of so you know i might i might give him some oblique references and right. not give away too much hopefully yeah well and, and and he'd be a good guy to kind of he would keep that silence for you too so. oh yeah he was he was i mean i the, he he was very good about not uh pestering me or not and not letting on that uh you know i'm he might be my occasional confidant right so so um, you may or may not be able to tell us this, so if you can't, that's fine. Are you going to continue writing in the Discovery universe? At present, I have no plans to do so, but that doesn't mean that that won't change. You know, right. where I'm still waiting on, I'm waiting on uh, Simon and & Schuster and, and CBS to get their act together and, and finalize the licensing agreement so that pocketbooks and gallery, or, sorry, gallery books really nowadays um, and pocketbooks can start once again, publishing Star Trek novels. Okay. Um, you know, their, their license agreement ended at the end of, of 2017, and oh. the new agreement has not been finalized yet. So we're all sort of like waiting and working on other things while we wait for the word to come down that okay. uh, we've got a green light. And and then I'm sure an editor will call me from, from pocket and ask me what I'm interested in writing or tell me that they need a particular kind of book from okay. me, as they always have. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be fun. I'd like... I'd, I'd, I'd certainly do it if asked. I mean, I'd certainly want to do it if the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. I have some ideas on what I'd like to do. Oh, good. Good. 
Now, did you have, uh, I mean, I'm asking you like 20 questions here on your book, but the, uh, did you have, uh, how much, um, free reign did you have in writing the book? Or did they say, we want you to talk about this story 10 years in the past? They gave me a, a tremendous amount of latitude. Um, they, they told me in the very beginning that they wanted me to write a Lorca story. And at that time, I did not know about the twist with Lorca. Um, I don't know that they even knew about it yet, at least at that point in time, or they had a vague idea about it, but they didn't hadn't cemented it yet. Um, so I was looking at Lorca ideas and I was sketching out ideas and she had even, when I say she, Kirsten had even given me a couple of suggestions on what she might want me to do. Um, but as I started reading the first couple of scripts, which, you know, are the ones that feature Giorgio very heavily, um, I started realizing I really like this character and I would really like to write something that focuses with on her to some degree. And uh, Kirsten, you know, was still really pushing for me to write a Lorca story. But then my editor, along with Kirsten, they both said, well, why don't you just write a story with both of the characters? Well, there you go. And so then I started changing my ideas around on what how what would bring these two together, because there's really no indication in the show itself whether or not they have met prior to the events of the series. It's still kind of an unanswered question or you know an unspoken question or whatever. So, uh, so I started coming up with ideas that might bring these two together, and um, Tarsus Four was one of those ideas, and oh. that's the one that Kirsten really liked. Oh, very good, awesome. But as far as the storyline itself, they said, "Go forth, you know, and do your thing. Uh, you have carte blanche to develop." The Tarsus Four storyline, as you see fit, you know, just as long as you would keep it consistent with what we know about it, which is very little when you really knock it down. There's not a whole lot about that whole incident that you know beyond the episode, right? So I was given pretty much free reign, you know, within reason, right? To, uh, flesh it out as I saw fit. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you got a chance to. Ex- we got to explore what happened on Tarsus Four, and just. I mean, it's talked about in, I think, the episode Conscience of the King. Yeah, that's the only time you ever hear it referenced. And then as far as their backstories for Giorgio and Lorca, I was given fairly free reign to do what I did. And I think the only note I got with respect to changing a particular point about a backstory was the name of the ship that Giorgio was going to go to after this incident. Like She was on her way to a ship to be the first officer and uh i i forget i don't don't even remember what i was going to call it and then they turned around and said now we want you to make make it the you know the defiant i said okay you know that was pretty much the only note i got Mm -hmm. very good well that's awesome that's awesome and uh so what's uh what's up and coming for you dayton as far as i know that you said there's nothing trek wise uh maybe other otherwise maybe some other novels that you're writing uh, the, the thing that's coming up for me next is next month I've got a couple of Star Trek books that are not novels, but um, they are published by Inside Editions, the people who did my travel guides from a couple of years ago. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, they have got a, another imprint called Incredibuilds where they put together – they create these little wooden models that you assemble. Like, you know, it's all, all the pieces are laser cut, and you punch them out of the, of the sheet of really thin wood. It's not really balsa wood. It's a little bit – more robust than that but you get to put together the model of whatever the thing is so it's either a spaceship like there's they do star wars and dc comics and marvel comics and harry potter and uh some other franchises but they're just getting started on a star trek line and i did the first two books 
I wrote books for the first two models in that series. So each model comes with its own little companion book that gives you like behind the scenes info or background info on the thing that that is the model. So the first two in the Star Trek line are the original Enterprise and the Enterprise D from Next Generation. Awesome. So I wrote the two companion books that give you all the background info on the ships. That's fantastic. And they're out next month, you said? They come out next month. You know, they're aimed at kids. They're like the 12, 12, 8, 10 to 12-year-old bracket, age bracket. And they're really easy to put together. You don't need glue or tape or anything to, to assemble the model. They just kind of fit together. And uh, they're really cool. Yeah, it was a fun It was a fun job to do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, very cool. And if you want to find out more as far as what's going on in Dayton's world, and including your books and other ramblings on the Internet, where would they do that? Oh my, go to DaytonWorld.com and you will get an eyeful. Oh, I bet. <laughs> it's that is my uh, social media platform, launch pad, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's, you know, you go to my blog and you go to my Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else I've got linked onto that thing. So yeah, <laughs> I spend an unhealthy amount of time connected to social media in one form or another. <laughs> it's Fog of Ward. Is that the same thing? Yep, same thing. So. All right, very good. So I just didn't know. Do you, is it fogaward.com? Is that still a URL? No, it's just daytonward.com, but I titled the, the blog. Uh, it's fogaward. Uh, fogaward. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Very good. Well, tonight we are here to talk about the movie Search for Spock. And we just, uh, we started off by talking uh, about Star Trek One, the, um, the uh, the motion picture with Larry Nemechek, and then we have brought Joe Colton on to talk about the Wrath of Khan. And now here we are with Dayton Ward talking about the search for Spock. Miles, do you want to start us in here? Sure. So uh, the search for Spock came out June 1st, 1984. That was a release date. I remember that because we actually saw that movie for my, for my birthday. And um, the production budget estimated uh, about seventeen million um, worldwide. It made about eighty-seven million, and that's that's pretty good at the time. The short storyline: In the wake of Spock's ultimate deed of, of sacrifice, Admiral Kirk and the Enterprise crew return to Earth for some essential repairs to their ship. When they arrive at space dock, space dock, they are shocked to discover the Enterprise is to be decommissioned. Even worse, Dr. McCoy begins acting strangely, and Scotty has been reassigned to another ship. Kirk is forced to steal back the Enterprise and head across space to the Genesis planet to save Spock and bring him a Vulcan. Unknown to them, the Klingons are planning to steal the secrets of the Genesis device for their deadly purpose, for their own deadly purpose. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So search for Spock. Um, I did not see this. since you saw, you saw it like on your birthday. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Right. I saw it twice in theaters that year. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. I didn't see it to many, many years later, but did you see it in theaters, Dayton? I did. I don't remember if it was opening day, but it was certainly opening weekend. It was opening weekend. Um, I was just shy of my 17th birthday. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it was me and a couple friends. We were we went to the – because that was – see, 1984, that was the same year that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out. Ooh. So, yeah, we were hitting the movie theater a lot and <laughs> Ghostbusters and a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good year for movies. It was a good, good year, year for movies. It was definitely good not the year best, for but right up there. But it was, up there. <laughs> it was a good year. Good, a good year for movies. But um, 
Yeah, so I don't remember. I think I watched this movie probably in the basement of my friend's house on VHS, <laughs> like in the late '80s. Um, and I just don't, I, I don't remember exactly when I saw it, but it wasn't there. The guy, my friend, was a huge uh, Trekkie at the time, and so he watched a lot of the original movies, at least on VHS. But I never saw it in the theater. But so, uh, how do you want to take this? Um, I. I went back and rewatched it, and uh, it's a good story. Um, what do you think, Miles? What direction do we want to take this here tonight? I'd be curious what Dayton thinks, but I, I wonder if this movie is kind of like The Empire Strikes Back, but this is for The Empire Strikes Back for Star Wars. It's maybe not always the, the most uh, well-regarded film because it's – it, it, it's it's the third film in the franchise, and there's the the Star Trek curse where the third the odd number movies are usually not the best movies. But honestly, this this movie I think is fantastic. Um, it, it puts our heroes in, in in a really dark, challenging place. Um, but this movie did a lot as far as world building, as far as the Star Trek universe at the time. As far as we saw new ships, we saw this great space dock, we saw the Klingons again. Um, it, it did a lot. So I, I think it's one of the best Star Trek movies out there myself. So, Trek Yoda, what are your thoughts? <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's a pretty solid little flick. Um, you know, it it suffers from the fact that I don't think this was intended. It, and what I mean that is, I, I do believe that um, when Star Trek Two was completed, and you know Spock dies at the end, spoiler alert, um, yeah. they weren't going to make any more. They, you know, and then the studio comes back and goes, "Well, you know, hey, that thing made a lot of money. Go make, or you know, it made some decent money. Go, go make another one." Um, and so they had to figure out a way. To, and then, of course, Leonard Nimoy wanted to direct it, and somehow decided to, he wanted to undo what was done in the second movie. So that you know, that pretty much dictated what the direction of the story was going to be at that point. Um, it's sort of like Planet of the Apes. You know, every movie they they would make it like it was the last one, and then the studio would come back and go, "We'll make another one." Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And you're like, "Well, I just screwed up everything." You know, um, doesn't matter. You know, make I blew up the planet. Make another one. All right, <laughs> so bring it back. Okay. Well, you know. Um, so yeah, it's but it's just of the. I mean, the whole odd number movie curse. I, I don't necessarily agree with it completely because I will stand up and unabashedly claim myself as a fan of the first Star Trek film. Um, I think the only one that really, really suffered or the one that really deserves it is Star Trek five. And I can even find stuff to enjoy about that movie. Yeah. So um, this is it's a pretty solid flick for, you know, being saddled with what it has to do. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I was, I was doing a little bit of research uh, on the movie and, uh, uh, the, the one place said that the day after Star Trek two opened, Aratha Khan opened, uh, Paramount contacted Harb Bennett to begin work in the sequel. Right. So like, or, right. You know, like the moment that they saw how well it was going to do, they said, go ahead, return on. They originally titled it Star Trek three return to Genesis. And then Nimoy got into it and he had trouble getting into it because there were rumors that were circulating that he insisted that Spock be killed off. And right. uh, he kind of has denied that, or he seems. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think 
he was convinced to come back for Star Trek II by either Nick Meyer or Harv Bennett by saying, you know, we'll give you a really awesome death scene, which, you know, Nimoy was, 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 would have loved that challenge of that role. Right. Um, but I think Harv Bennett was probably one of the few people, if not the, if not the only person on the production for Star Trek II who was hedging bets because according to the, you know, the stories from the set, it was his idea for Spock to do the mind meld on McCoy with the remember line. Um, cause he was hedging bets for, you know, maybe I could come up with something to use with that in a future movie, whether or not Nimoy was in it. Um, so that's a TV producer thinking ahead, you know, because uh, that's where Harv Bennett's background was, was in television. Yeah. Uh, so I, I suspect that there was a little there was a lot of going things moving on that particular game board, you know, that finally gelled when the studio said, yeah, pretty good. Go make another one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I I always, you know, I had heard. You know, through the rumors that, you know, Nimoy wanted out after Trek 2, but that's not the indication I'm getting as I read through notes and stuff on Star Trek 3. Um, I know that, I know that, um, Nimoy had struggled with his role as Spock over the years, but I don't think it was in this movie. It didn't seem like. I think he was, whatever issues he had with Paramount were resolved prior to filming the first Star Trek film. He had, he held out for a lot of years because he felt he was owed um, merchandising money and they were using his likeness without his permission and they were making money off of it and he wasn't getting a slice of that action. Right. Um, so he held out for that before signing off for Star Trek for the first film. And then uh, I think by the time of the second one, it was the idea of being, uh, you know, killed off or, you know, ending it. Um, but maybe, maybe he had second thoughts, you know, maybe it's kind of like Shatner at the end of generations. Maybe after it was over, he said, eh, maybe I want to keep doing this for a while. It's pretty fun to hang out with these guys every couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. 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 You never I know. Think, yeah. I mean, he seemed to be, he's, I don't know if he actually would have directed Star Trek three, even if he wasn't in it. I don't know that for sure, but right. I know that that was a stipulation of returning for the third film was that he'd be allowed to direct it. Right. Right, and I guess it helped that Nicholas Myers didn't want to direct it. So this was probably true. That's probably true. He was like, he read the script and said, "No way, I want to do it," because he thought he thought the second one should have been the last one. So, but so uh, Miles had asked about this being comparable to the, the Empire Strikes Back. I mean, what do you think about that as far as the place of this movie in the uh, Trek universe? I guess in some ways it has echoes of it. I mean, you know, but it's particularly the way things are left at the end um, when you don't know what's going to happen after, after, after the crew is reunited at the end. Uh, Cause there's this big question mark, you know, that they are essentially fugitives. They are. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of, there's a little, I guess you could say there's a little bit of that. Yeah. 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 Very good. And I think that's one of the things I really did enjoy about this movie is you see the enterprise crew go on the lab. I mean, they're, they basically are running from the Federation to obviously save Spock. Yeah, and, they've uh, basically thrown away their careers. Uh, they're risking court-martial, um, risking, you know, whatever passes for prison in Star Trek land uh, to go save their friend. So, right. it's, you know, it's the whole inversion of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. They, In fact, that's a theme throughout this film is that they invert that, that right. axiom. Right. Um, for Spock's benefit. 
And at the end of the movie, we're all like, well, okay, I have questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are we going to do? What, what happens next? You know, and of course, the Enterprise has been destroyed. And, you know, Spoiler that's, alert. That no, no, no. I'm sorry, spoilers. <laughs> no. Um, but I mean, they, where, what's going to happen next? Because at this point, I think everybody in this movie theater and everybody at the studio is probably thinking, yeah, there's going to be another one unless this one just tanks. Right. Um, in but other words, you, yeah, I think they went into this knowing that there would be a they would they went into this one knowing that if it was successful there would be a fourth movie. It wasn't like the first two where they were just shooting you know for the one film. Right, right. I mean, I remember at, at, at the end of the film when the credits started rolling, said the the, the adventure continues. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's like the Star Trek version of James Bond will return. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think I think at this point. Assuming it did well, it was a foregone conclusion that there would be a fourth film. So, and naturally, Harv Bennett now at the helm, he's thinking he's again he's bringing that TV sensibility of leaving them wanting more, and then you know coming back next season, basically the season-ending cliffhanger every right. every couple of years. Um, so yeah, that's that's you could say there's an Empire Strikes Back vibe at the end of this one. Just there's an echo of it. Yeah, sure. I often hear people uh, when they talk about uh, Star Trek, I guess maybe I've heard about it more with Discovery, but even here is how how Trek, in your opinion, how Trek is this movie or how Roddenberry is this movie? And what does that even mean? Maybe is the other question when people talk about that. I don't know what it means by how Roddenberry is this movie, yeah. but is, is, is this a Trek story? Absolutely, it's a Trek story. Yeah. It's, it's about the characters. It's not about the hardware. It's about the characters and their relationship. I mean, it's we get we probably get more more character study in the these two in this film and the prior film than we did through the entire run of the original show. Absolutely, in terms of the, the relationships of these characters and and the bond that they share. Uh, I think that that is definitely. You definitely it's on display here, you know, because the links that they are going to go to for their friend, they don't even think twice about tossing their careers aside. They don't even think twice about facing court martial and potential prison. Their friend is in need and they're going. So um, but I, I like to think that it's a natural progression. I mean, we, we by how long have we known these characters by this point? You know, it's just. In real time, it was just shy of twenty years right. uh, since the original show had been premiered. So you know we've we, and and we've had years of imagining the friendships and the relationships between these characters because of books and novels and fan fiction and everything else. So we've we've figured we've already come up with our own ideas on how how close these people are, and I think some of that's borne out in these two films in particular. Well, yeah, and I think what what I what, what struck me about both Khan and Source for Spock, you see in it, especially with. Uh, with Shatner, uh, a depth of loss, uh, and him struggling with loss and, and, uh, and revenge, um, and with Khan, but then even here with his son being killed by the King Klingons, this is a, uh, there's some pretty deep and, uh, real storylines. He's, he's not just a cocky captain that's sometimes portrayed, but there, there's a man of depth. Yeah, you see that. In the in the in the latter half of of Khan, where you know he's coming to terms with the the loss, and he's coming to terms with the fact that you know his past actions are coming back to bite him in the butt, and he's having or he's having to pay a penance for past actions, 
and you know Spock's lost that kind of thing. He's he even says it. You know, I never faced this sort of thing. It's I don't I don't know anything. I'm a fraud. I'm a faker. Or whatever. I've been I've been I've been cavalier about it my entire career, and now it's come back and smacked me across the face. <laughs> and then you see, and then here and start in, in this one where you know where David is killed while he listens in on it. Um, you know, I'll get, I'll give it to Shatter. I know Shatter gets his fair share of ribbon for his acting, but I really think he did a great job selling this. Oh yeah, we haven't seen we haven't seen him this raw. You know, not counting Star Trek too, but I mean, we haven't seen him this raw about loss. You know, since you know Edith Keeler died. In, in City on the Edge of Forever, um, I mean, he's really shaken. He, you know, just just in that whole bit where he stumbles and falls back to the floor on the bridge, and he's just trying to reach for the words, and he's, he's you know he's holding, he's trying to keep his emotions in check, and then and then all of a sudden he's got that look of determination and resolve, like I'm gonna make this prick pay for this, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's you know I'll give props to Shatner on that one. That was a that was a great scene. It was. I read, I think it might have been in Shatner's Movie Memories book. He said he and Nimoy actually worked on that scene, just the two of them. I think maybe even on the bridge set to try to, you know, figure out how how to play that scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree. I think uh, he he hears his own son getting killed over 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 the uh, communicator, and uh, you know. Who? How would any of us react? I mean, if, if, yeah. that, if that happened to us, I mean, yeah. um, I, I believed it. I, I I hurt for him when when I saw it when I when when it happened, and um, yeah, it's, it, you, you say maybe maybe his motive to to pull together was I'm going to get that Klingon bastard, you know, uh, but uh, but he goes into you know captain mode as how, mm-hmm. how what you know we, the ship the ship is disabled what right. what last card do i have to play oh yeah. well, i could blow up the ship yeah he yeah he's mad he, i mean he's he's mad he's grief stricken he's he wants you, you know you can almost sense that he just wants to curl up into a ball and cry but he's got things to do he's got a ship in danger he's got his people in danger and you know the and the reason that they're here in the first place is still out there and um he has to balance all of that and do it from the bridge of a crippled starship, you know? So it's, it's a pretty powerful, to me, that's the pivot point of the movie. This is where it all, the payoff starts right here. Uh, everything else to this point has just been built up. Now we're cooking. Oh yeah. Um, and that resolve that he decides he's going to, you know, he's going to, the only card he has left to play is to sucker these people into coming over here to get him. And uh, while he flips the switch, uh, pretty ballsy, pretty bold move, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and and clever. I mean, you get most of the Klingons on the ship and blow it up. I mean, you've only have a few more Klingons you got to deal with. But I think it also illustrates that he's somewhat compromised by what's going on because you know when you think about it, it's not the smartest play because <laughs> all it does is maroon you on a planet, <laughs> right? You know, with with a Klingon ship in the orbit above the planet. So it's like, okay, I don't know if he thought all the way through, right, right. And but I mean, it sure looked cool or it sure got those guys. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's like if he had been clear headed, he might have had a different a different idea for what came next. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, But, you know, there's an element of ingenuity in his plan. But yet at the same time, you're like, he's not totally himself because he's got all this other stuff weighing on him right now. And you're thinking I probably would have done something differently if I wasn't so pissed off and angry right now. 
Uh, that that probably lends to an authenticity to his response, though, because I mean, when we're all pissed off at something, we don't always think everything quite the way through. You know, exactly right. It's an emotional moment. Right. I mean, he's got one card, and he, you know, he's 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 a he's still a tactician. You know, we 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 knew that from the original show that he he's something of a gifted tactician, and you know, a chess player, and he's always looking for that next move. But you know, again, emotion is weighing heavily on him, so you can kind of understand that oh well this you know in hindsight this was not the smartest play but it worked you know it did work it did work what did you think of uh christopher lloyd as the klingon villain (laughs) (laughs) Uh, do you want me to answer first miles why why don't you go first and then i want to hear what dayton has you know i'm gonna be let me preface this saying so i watched this movie after watching back to the future and (laughs) i can't (laughs) i can't go back and undo that so when I write see him, I just expect him somewhere in his best Klingon to yell out, great Scott, and, you know, do his thing, right? Um, when this baby, when the starship hits 88 miles an hour, we're going to see some serious shit, you know, that sort of thing. But um, you guys saw it before Back to the Future was out. How do you, how was this interpreted? Obviously, when you look at him as the, the Klingons have developed, he doesn't quite fit the muster in today's standards but what was it like seeing him on screen the first time well my first experience with christopher lloyd and probably dayton will experience is probably similar um my my, was reverend jim from taxi (laughs) exactly yeah uh i I, you know you you couldn't get a, a total opposite character to playing commander krug um but i bought it i believed i was just like i i that I was, you know, I was able to set aside what I remember about Reverend Jim, um, and then just enjoy uh, Christopher Lloyd's performance. But that's that 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 was my first foray into Christopher Lloyd was Reverend Jim from Taxi. And what do you have think? you ever seen? Have you ever seen Taxi, Scott? I have not. So. Oh, oh, so you need to go watch it. It's like one of the best best sitcoms of the seventies. Um, but Christopher Lloyd plays a character, um, who is basically a walking, talking advertisement for don't do drugs. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> you know, he did a little too much LDS in the sixties. You know, it's like, I mean, he's, he's complete. he's basically a walking after effect of too much <laughs> drug use. And so his, his antics and his speech mannerisms and his, you know, his, his speech and his mannerisms and his, you know, just his the way he looks, he's always wide-eyed, like he's coked out of his head. Um, Lens, and that's the character he played for the entire run of Taxi. And, and then so they cast him as Lloyd, uh, as Krug in uh, this movie. And of course, we're looking at each other like, "Well, this is going to go over well." <laughs> and of course, that lended itself to all sorts of jokes at the time. Uh, even Kevin Pollak, even you know the comedian, even did a great impersonation of Reverend Jim as Krug. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I have to try to find that. Yeah, it's pretty funny, but. Uh, so yeah, every once in a while when he's talking, especially when he's got his when he's you know when he's angry or when he's barking orders and stuff, you can't help but hear Reverend Jim. Um, and then of course you know Doc Brown came later, and you're thinking, oh, there's got to be a through line between these three characters. If I can <laughs> find it. So. <laughs> oh yeah did you did you buy him as 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 a villain in, in as a villain if I can speak here in Star Trek Three here. Uh, yeah, but not by a lot. <laughs> you know okay. what, I mean? what do you mean by that? Not the, I don't think he's the strongest Klingon character we've had. You know what I mean? 
um, we've had better Klingons uh, before and, and after. I mean, but he does okay. I mean, he you know, it's he uh, he, he 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 quits himself well, uh, but maybe not the strongest Klingon captain we've ever had. Right. Uh, but I still enjoyed his performance. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say it was. I wouldn't say for me it was off-putting when I watched it again. I, I just, uh, I just kept going to when he would speak. I would, I would hear him and say, "Okay, a guy, he, he is not Doc Brown, not Doc, not Doc Brown." You know, <laughs> I kept having yeah, to I pull myself back out. Um, but, but uh, I mean, I thought it was good. I thought his, I mean, the desire to get his hands on the Genesis project, and then um, the fight with Kirk at the end is. You know, kind of cool. It's a little bit campy now, but uh, but it's it's kind of cool in in that movie and uh, ups the ante a little bit. And then when he uh, when Kirk barks the Klingon order into the uh, the um, the voice whatever thingy that he uses to call himself back up to the uh, oh, the yeah. uh, the ship, the communicator. yeah, the communicator that calls himself up to the um, Klingon ship is kind of cool. So I thought they did okay. I mean, I I, I forget. Miles said the budget was seventeen million for this film in nineteen eighty four dollars, and I think that was a little bit up from what they gave Star Trek two, um, because I thought they did, for the most part, pretty well with the restricted budget they had. I mean, they were still able to come up with you know a new Klingon ship and the new space station and um, all kinds of other stuff that I w- that they didn't really get away with with star trek 2 i mean you could you could kind of tell that star trek 2 was working with a small budget uh, they milked they milked a lot from wherever they could find it to make that movie work in terms even you know reusing optical effect shots and oh, stuff yeah. like that and this movie i want to say that all the optical all the all the visual effects you know like the space effects were new i don't know that there was anything recycled from a prior film yeah i don't know either uh, I'm hard pressed to think of anything, um, including blowing up the ship, you know? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, given what they had to work with, I thought they, they did really well. There are a couple places where the, where the, it doesn't, I think there's a sequence where the, they're fighting and there's a piece of the cliff breaks away and it obviously looks like it's on a lever of some kind. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it looks like a TV set instead of being a natural breakaway or something, but that's minor stuff. You know, that's, oh, it it's, is. uh, I think it looks good for for what you know what they had to work with. And when you're watching that sort of thing the first time, you're caught up in the story of the actual caught fight, up. and you, you 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 don't see those sorts of things. So you watch a movie two or three times. So. That's not something I noticed until years later. You yeah, know? Uh, when I was four or seventeen, I didn't care. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, I did. I, I found this bit of uh, information I thought was interesting. We were talking about Christopher Lloyd. He was cast. Uh, Leonard Nimoy originally wanted Edward James Olmos to play Krug. I didn't know that. That's an interesting yeah. trivia bit. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, uh, but Hart uh, Hart Bennett was not keen on on Edward James Olmos, but that would have changed it a little bit. Wow, that would have been a real. Now I got. I'm just trying to imagine, <laughs> you know, because I love Edward James Olmos. Oh, me too. Anything. Oh, yeah. I can I can watch him in anything, and I'm just trying to because he would have been. This would have been just a, like a year or two after Blade Runner, you know, when they filmed it. And yeah, it would have. Man, that okay. That's cool. I'm gonna that's I'm gonna have to think about that some more. That's that's. I wonder if he ever did a screen. I wonder if he did any kind of screen test or anything, or if he read for the part or 
if it never got that far. But yeah, I don't know. Well, he just says that Leonard Nimoy wanted Edwards James almost. I don't know that he was ever even approached. Wow, that would have been something else. Because I mean, back then he was. This would have been pre Miami Vice, but post Blade Runner. Oh, so he when, was relatively when, unknown at that point. When was uh, when was Miami Vice? When did that begin to air? That would have been mid to late eighties, like eighty five, eighty six. Oh, so yeah, it would have been. Uh, it would have been. Um, it would have been before that. I, so. I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't known the way he is now. Back then, you know, he, he was still relatively new. Yeah, uh, Blade Runner may have been his most visible role at that point. I don't know. I don't know. It was a background that much, but man, that's. I've loved him in everything I've ever seen him in. Was he the uh, Was he the teacher in La Bamba? Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen La Bamba. Okay. No, but he was a teacher in another movie. He he did play the role of a teacher in a movie. What the heck was it? I forget. But yeah. But I mean, he's anything I've seen him in. That production is better for him being in it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would I would I would agree with that. Um, all right. Uh, Miles, uh, Dayton, anything you want to, any other thing in particular you want to talk about before we move on to some other things? I liked that when, when Kirk and crew were, were stealing the enterprise, most of them were in civilian uh, outfits. Uh, and some it's a little humorous when you look at what they were wearing. Um, but, (laughs) uh, but it was, I, I don't know. I, this time watching it again, I, I kind of took it as something a little more symbolic, just that um, these guys are possibly throwing away their Starfleet careers to do this. And j- just seeing them out of uniform and operating a ship like this, it, 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 was, it, was, it was very interesting, just, 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 just that, that idea of... Of them, they're, they're not. They're, I mean, they're they're still a crew, but they they, they like took their the ranking insignia and put it you know put it to the side, and it's just they're just 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 these people, do, you know, stealing stealing a starship. Um, I, I just just something I got out of watching it again this time. There's a. I feel sorry for. Uh, Walter Koenig, though, and the outfit that they gave him, because that's a horrific <laughs> outfit. Yeah, um, that was horrific. You're right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you notice they changed it in Star Trek Four. He, they, because everybody else is wearing the same clothes they wore in Star Trek Three, but not him. Not him. Well, he, had, he had a wardrobe change. Yeah. I was watching with with the uh, Akuda uh, text commentary, and they mentioned that, and I think that he even changed uh, outfit. Um, Mid- he may have changed it. He may have changed. You know what? That's a good question. I don't know. He may have changed it like before they got the Vulcan. You know, I don't. I don't know. But um, whatever he's that thing he's wearing when they hijack the Enterprise, which is one of my favorite scenes, by the way. That whole oh yeah that whole bit where they're stealing the Enterprise. Oh, uh, that's tremendous. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I I liked that. I liked that whole. It, to me, there was this element of we're all coming into work on the weekend kind of vibe when they all show up on the bridge in their civvies. Um, I liked that touch. That was an interesting, subtle message being sent out that, you know, this is not a Starfleet mission. This is not a sanctioned mission. We are totally breaking the rules here. Um, I liked that. It was a little visual. Plus it, you know, it gave, it gave them an excuse to put these people in different, different costumes because I mean, this is the first time 
that they've ever been in a show where they're not wearing a uniform. That's true. You know, That's dating true. back to the show. I mean, other than the times they were undercover or in disguise or something, but I mean, they, they you never just see them hanging out in their civilian attire, you know, off duty. Uh, this is the first time you see that, uh, which I thought was a nice touch, and it's something that they do again, you know, in uh, Star Trek Five. Yeah, I think I, I agree. That and Kirk's perm. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, hey, the eighties, eighties Shatner hair, you know, that's. It's uh, it's its own topic. We should probably just have a show devoted to that. <laughs> Shatner's perm. That'll be the name of the show. <laughs> Tons of listeners are going to come for that one. You got it. So I say it with love because I'm a huge Shatner fan. So. Oh yeah, uh, we make fun of it, but you know it is one of it is one of the notable things in the show. But uh, in the in the movie, but I agree with you, Dayton. I think that one of my favorite s- scenes is when it's a whole sequence of when they decide they're going to to hijack the enterprise them executing that them getting out of space dock and them warping and scotty handing him like the fuses for the uh the other ship yeah it was, you know it's just and it's so classic because you're like oh man these guys are screwed you know they're being chased by the excelsior they can go transwarp and yeah we never see transwarp but Never see it. No. no. Well, yeah, there's, there's another one. You know, they they were able to build us another another new starship class. You know, on this movie's budget. Um, no, I just love that whole sequence. And you know, the music in this movie. A lot of people are quick to dismiss it as just being a rehash of what we heard in Star Trek Two. But when you listen to the sound to the score, particularly nowadays when you can get the complete score, you know, through um, I think it's La La Land sells it. Um, it's its own thing. I mean, it takes cues from the second film, but it reworks them to so that it's unique to this film and it serves this film, not just, you know, it's just not repurposed. You know what I mean? Um, James Horner does a great job of, of reinterpreting a couple of the key cues from the second film to make it work for this film. And particularly that sequence where they're stealing the Enterprise. That is one of my favorite pieces of Trek film music. Uh, it is good music. It is good it's music. It's like an eight or nine minute track and it's great from start to finish. Well, James Horner just does beautiful music. God rest his soul. But, you know, he, he, he's done so much beautiful music and some of his track music is absolutely lovely. And it's good stuff to listen to in the background as you're working. And I think one of the reasons people say that, oh, you know, it's uh, not very memorable, but it, it provides a canvas for this movie that that it isn't distracting. You aren't noticing the music because you're engaged in the story. And I think that's what makes it good film music. It works, but it, it you know it, it's it, it adds that layer, it adds that background, but it doesn't intrude on your appreciation of the story. It just enhances it. It kind of gives you a little extra, a look, an extra cushion to enjoy the story. But when you listen to it apart from the film, without the you know the dialogue and the special effects and all that stuff, it's really solid music. Star Trek in particular, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, and some of the bigger franchise properties, you know, they benefit from these you know these full-blown orchestral scores and a lot of films get shortchanged on that sort of thing you know the guy composes a few beats of music or a few short cues of music that are a couple minutes long at the most and then they throw in you know conventional songs and stuff to build out their soundtrack right um star trek star trek was one of those properties that really benefited from great you know film scores so you had you know james horner and jerry goldsmith and you know even that even the newer films you know michael giacchino his film's music is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. people are all over the map as far as what they think about the new films, but 
I think most people, regardless of what they think about the movie, are on board with the fact that Giacchino's music is pretty solid. Mm. But yeah, James Horner in this, he acquits himself very well in this film. This is one, actually, this is one of my favorite film scores. Uh, the complete version. When they released the expanded version, I was I was excited because I got to hear a lot of stuff that I'd never heard aside from the film itself. You know. Wow. When we, we talk about them stealing the Enterprise, when I when I when I think of that scene, I can hear the music they're using for that. Also, when after the, the Enterprise saucer blows up, and you see the crew is on the Genesis planet. And you see this trail of smoke going across the sky. I could hear the music. That's how powerful an imprint it just left in my brain. You know, when 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 I when I saw that again. You know, yeah. when you when you talk about it, we talked about iconic moments. Not only is when they're obviously stealing the ship, but the destruction of the Enterprise, which of course in pro in promotional footage was spoiled for the fans. Everyone knew it was happening, um, but. When you see it, ha- still to see it happen on the screen, and then it have the crew watch it go across the sky with that music playing in the background, it was probably one of the, for me one of the other big emotional moments of this piece. Oh yeah, it was really it was really uh, jaw dropping in the theater. I mean, I mean, we we knew going in it was going to be destroyed because, like I said, they blew it in the trailer uh, or in the TV spots. But I mean, just th- mostly what you see is. I think in the trailers, all you saw was the you know the initial explosion in the saucer section, and then the flying away, you know, while it's kind of on fire. You don't see the rest of it. You don't you don't see the the, the countdown. You don't see the initial explosions. You don't see it arcing toward the planet, you know, and flaming through the atmosphere and their reaction. That's was something you didn't get to experience until you saw the movie, and it's really a great scene. I mean, it's you know this is definitely. Things are definitely taking a turn for the worst for our characters at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, well, how the heck are they going to get out of this? You know. <laughs> well, it's not a no-win situation, apparently. Well, I mean, because what they don't know at the time this is all happening is what we already know. We're ahead of them a couple of beats. Remember, we know the planet is tearing itself apart slowly. They well, don't. Isn't isn't, <laughs> isn't Kirk told that though when he's on the ship? Think, oh, you know what? I want to say that I want to say that there's thought, a conversation. Yeah, that, they were saying something. I think they did say something. David said something like the planet's unstable, but I don't know if he said it was going to blow itself up. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, I have to go back and watch that part. Yes. But, um, I want to say again, they, you know, they didn't know. Best, but. best play of a bad, you know, least least objectionable of a lot of bad choices was the blow up the ship and beam down the planet. Right. And again, he's doing it because he's emotionally charged, not totally thinking this all the way through. Well, I mean, I guess he's thinking if he stays on the ship, they're going to die. At least on the planet, they got a fighting chance, right. which is what McCoy says. You know, if you gave us, you, you know, you, you took us out of the certain the certain death scenario and gave us a shot. We'll 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 figure out what to do next from here. We'll all figure it out together. Right. And that's the that's the unspoken subtext is like Kirk engineers this and gets them down to the planet, and then together they will figure it out. That's right. what we know as the viewer. These people will figure it out. Right. Right. Absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, is it, talk about McCoy. McCoy has some of the best lines in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he gets a lot of the humor lines in this movie. I mean, he's he's the comic relief. What were some and, of your favorite and, lines from McCoy? My, well, probably the favorite is um, after Kirk tells McCoy, 
you're a victim of Vulcan mind melds. You know, Spock mind melded with you before he went into the uh, dilithium reaction room uh, chamber. He goes, that green-blooded son of a bitch. This is his revenge for all the arguments he lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great McCoy line. Yeah. That one and, um, you know, when he's talking to the guy in the bar, you know, they're trying to get the planet. He's trying to get a ship to take him to Genesis. And he's like, how can you be deaf with ears like that? You know, it's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that whole bar yeah. scene was hilarious. That was a great. Yeah. yeah, that was great. And then there was one about, oh, when he's mad at Scotty, you know, because he kept him in the dark about the escape plan. And, you know, then Scotty hands him the chips, you know, and. Uh, McCoy is like you could have told me or something to that effect and Kirk's like that's what you get for missing staff meetings you know that's just <laughs> yeah. a great one liner you know uh, no I agree I love that line there's a lot of humor in this film which is and it's and it doesn't feel out of place I mean it's just it's an easy humor between people who know each other very well and I wouldn't call this a humorous film per se like this is a very a this, this feels very yeah. serious like when I think humors I think of like Voyage Home like there's a lot yeah, it's not a comedy it's not a comedy but there there's some organic humor in the that that comes from the situation and you know again it's an easy it's kind of like when you and your friends you know you you sort of give each other grief or you 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 bust each other's chops you know okay. at work or whatever because you know each other very well and you know there's that the other person is not going to get upset with you they know you're ribbing them they know you're giving them grief it's that kind of humor it's office humor it's work humor yeah you know Kirk, how many fingers do I have up? That's not damn funny. <laughs> Your sense of humor is returned. Yeah. The hell it yeah. has. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're right. There, there are some great lines in here. Um, oh, we got to talk about um, when they're busting McCoy out. Uh, uh, you know, Sulu says to the one security guard, they're keeping you busy. And the guy didn't like that and he says uh don't get smart tiny and uh there's a story behind that uh george decay didn't like that line serious uh, he thought he thought it was diminish diminishes his character whatever and then you know he, he sulu gets the last laugh he kicks this guy's ass and decay saw it in theaters and saw how people you know Laughed. They also liked when 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 to, when Sulu got to get his comeuppance against uh, the security guard, and he said, you know, he had to admit he was wrong on that one. It was a it was a lot of, and then there's, there's the bit with uh, Uhura and the young the, the young the uh, the rookie Starfleet officer, you Mister Adventure. He's like, yeah, I Mister Adventure. Yeah, says, you know, I'm looking for a little excitement. You know, I know this is this is probably what you like. You know, someone whose career is winding down, and Michelle <laughs> Nichols gives this evil eye. Oh yeah, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great. It's a great look from her. She doesn't have to say a word, but that expression on her face is absolutely perfect. Like, are you kidding me? You yeah. know. So, oh yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that. Get to the closet. Touches, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, you know one of the other uh, emotional moments I think for me when we looked at this movie is, of course, the revelation of of Leonard Nimoy. Of uh, not not the growth, not the transformation on planet. But when you actually see Leonard Nimoy take on the character of Spock again after he gets his memories back, um, and maybe before that, but especially when he kind of walks out there and he's, you know, he's there looking at all his friends, and that walkthrough is a very emotional time. You mean at the end yeah. after the after the after the after the transfer? Yeah, the, you got it. The, yeah, and he gets up off the table, and you're not. 
we don't know what he's going to, how he's going to be, you know, cause right. you're thinking, is he, is he really the Spock that we knew from the other movies and the show? Or is this like a re, is there a clone of Spock? What right. is this? Right. You know, they don't really say, um, and we are left mean, with you, a little bit of uncertainty about that. It's not really the real Spock. It's a, it's another version of Spock that got created from Genesis. Right. Exactly. We don't know. We don't know. And we don't know, you know, if, uh, I think there's some doubt as to whether the mind meld will even work. Yeah, there's some, there's some. I mean, I guess if we really wanted to, we could pull this thing apart and pick at all the plot holes. But there's no fun in that. No. Um, you know, we we are asked to sort of go with the flow here. I mean, this is, um, you know, I I don't. Yeah, it's a little it's a little hinky, but we go with it because we want our heroes to win. We want them to triumph, and we want them all back together again like a family. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting at this point because I would argue that even during the original show, you didn't necessarily think of these characters as a family. You know what I mean? But they were they were a crew, and you know it was the captain and his and his officers. But I don't know that, that aside from the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, I don't know that you necessarily got a true family bond between all of them. Not during the show. I think that comes later. You know, yeah, and a lot you of that, get of course, that. Was, you, you, you do get was, that here. Yeah, you get that here. I mean, that's it's absolutely here. If 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 it starts anywhere, it starts in this film. I mean, there's that easy familiarity of of long service together in the other two films, but I think it's this one that really cements the fact that this is a family. There's more here than just having served on the same ship together. Yeah. Um, and it's you know at this point you could say it was way overdue, but <laughs> true. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I don't mean that necessarily, but I mean that's just the nature of the fact that you know the the show was twenty years in the past, and we did you know we were filling in the blanks with again you know fan stuff. It was either comics and books, or it was a fan fiction, or it was just our own ideas that we read between the lines. But you didn't really get that formal acknowledgement of that until I'd argue here. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. We. We we start getting it when when they're on the Enterprise just before they're ready to launch, and Kirk is telling Scotty, Sulu, and Chekhov that uh, that it, you know they should they should get off the ship now, um, mm-hmm. and they're like, um, of course, Captain, and he's like, he sees they're they're not they're, 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 these people are going to stay with them till till this thing gets finished. Yeah. And, this is made yeah. the wind be at her backs. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in really this it starts in the second film. I mean, when you know, when Spock dies, that's that that hits everybody really hard. And yeah. you get you get the sense that there's more here than just these are not shipmates. They're more than shipmates, but right. it's really here that it starts to really gel. And like you said, he gave them every opportunity to back out and save their own skins and they're all like, Are you high? We're all going. We're in this together. Right. And <laughs> And they and, aren't just in it because that, of yeah. Kirk. And then from that, from this point on, that's the way they're. That's the way they are depicted. They are. They are a very close bonded family at this. From this point forward, and I think that works well right. for them. That way, works well for the uh, the crew as we see the subsequent movies that follow. And so. I think it sort of helps explain, you know, because in reality, if this was the real, if this was a real service or a real military, these people would never be together for this length of time. You know, they would not all stay on the same ship. And, and serve together 
throughout their entire career. That's you know that's that's a, that's a, a conceit we have to give because it's a film and not real life. But I mean, in the real military, you 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 make short term relationships and friendships, and then you move on to your next duty assignment. Right. You know, and then maybe you'll cross paths with somebody again at a future duty assignment. But the idea that these people would serve for twenty plus years together on the same ship in the same positions is not realistic, but who cares? It's Star Trek. Right. Um, so, so the five-year mission would be a realistic thing, but because it went beyond that, that's not realistic. Right. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, at the end of the five-year mission, these people are all, all be, you know, they're all either commanders or, or, or bucking for that rank and they're, they're leaders. They're, they're, they're leaders of crews at this point, or they're in position to be. So they would all go their different ways. Um, they would be in leadership positions somewhere, whether they command a ship or they command a station or they command some unit or whatever. But, um, maybe you could make the argument that after the events of this film and after everything they've been through and what they'll go through in the next film, they just kind of look around and go, I'm happy where I'm at. You know, this is my gang right here. I'm going to stay together for these. We're going to stay together. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe there's sort of a justification there that's, you know, obviously they never spell it out, but that's how I choose to look at it. Oh, very cool. Um, well, any final thoughts before we begin to wrap up here? Cause we're about in an hour here. We haven't given James P. Seeking, seeking his due. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> He's awesome as this prick. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody plays a prick like James P. Seeking. You know, Seeking. Have you say his last name? Is um, that Captain Styles? Is that is, is it Captain Styles? Yeah. Is that who you're talking about? The Excelsior's captain. Yeah. He's such an officious prick. He is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, it's it's a pity we only see him in this one movie because uh, I would have liked to have seen him again. <sighs> Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe the guy who lowers the boom on Kirk at the end of four or something, you know, yeah. or, or something to that effect. That would be, uh, that would be interesting. I, I like it. Can tell Scotty hated him. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I love that line when he gets, when they, when he's notified that the enterprise is being stolen and the first officer says, <laughs> yellow alert, captain, the bridge, yellow alert, captain styles bridge. This is a captain. How can you have a yellow alert in space dock? <laughs> Someone's stealing like, Enterprise. Have, I'm on my way. How do, you, how do you have to you have to give it up for a guy who's okay cleaning his fingernails and filing his fingernails while lying in bed so that all his fingernail clippings and shavings or whatever are landing on his uniform? I know. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of a slob does that? Yeah, well, <laughs> Captain Styles. Captain Styles. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, he does have some good good lines. Um. Kirk, you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Warp speed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a great line because uh, it's you get you get Shatner's face when he's hearing it, and the, and he's sitting down in the chair, and you know you can tell he's processing it, going, "I'm good with that." You know, that's it's a great moment. That whole sequence is a great moment. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the other line when he's talking to Scotty, "Turn myself in. I'm turning myself in. Looking forward to breaking some Enterprise speed records tomorrow." <laughs> And you could just see Scotty giving him the eye, side eye. Oh, know. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Behind his back, frowning at him. So, yeah. Oh, we do. We did have to talk. And we, we should talk, too, about uh, Christy Alley's character gets switched out in this movie. Yeah. I don't recall why she. I th- well, here's, what, here, here's what I read. And maybe Miles. You, Miles. Miles, you. Uh, yes. Uh, did, you, did it talk about this on the, the, the commentary? Talk about this. All it said was that Robin Curtis replaced Kirstie Alley uh, playing Savick. But from what I read in other um, 
uh, other articles or or in books, uh, Kirstie Alley wanted more money. Mm. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, so here's the write up that I have. It says Christy Alley had played, you know, was Savick in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, but the characters recast Search for Spock with Robin Curtis wearing the pointy ears. There were mixed accounts as to why Alley didn't return for many years to believe she didn't want to be typecast. But later she revealed that she loved the role and wanted to return. Apparently, Alley had failed to communicate her desire strongly enough to her agent, who had overplayed his hand and demanded a higher uh, fee. Okay. Demanded a higher That's fee the- than Paramount was willing to pay. I mean, I know she was. Was she on Cheers at this point? Would she have been on Cheers at this point? I don't remember. Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. I get a, she hadn't come in yet. Um, but that's a shame because uh, I, I prefer her portrayal. It's interesting. I prefer her portrayal of Savick to Robin Curtis, but I'm not really dinging Robin Curtis. You know, Robin Curtis is a different actress and she brought a different. She brought something different to the role. There was a different. Um, There's definitely a different tone in the way the characters yeah, were played. But, and I've never met Kirstie Alley in person, but I have met Robin Curtis, and she's one of the nicest people I've ever met on the convention circuit. And she's really, she's really funny, um, and a really nice person to talk to. So maybe that color, you know, I didn't like her portrayal at the time, but I've, you know, I softened my stance on it you know, <laughs> right. over the years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. You know, it's not her fault right. know, She's uh, that Kirstie Alley played it a little differently. Right. Um, but I mean, they didn't, they, they went to the extra step, you know, the, they went the extra step of changing her hairstyle and, you know, they didn't even try to make her look like Kirstie Alley's version of the character. They just, they went a completely different direction with her hairstyle and her uniform and all that stuff. It was, it was interesting that they did that. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't even think about when I was watching the movie this time that this, that this was a this was supposed to be a continuation of the same character. Like I didn't pick up on that. I, I wasn't paying, maybe yeah. I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I, I didn't pick up on that. Cause I, I was reading her as a different character. I think um, because of that, I want to say that I read the novelization of star Trek three before I saw the movie. And so I had it and I knew, I knew going in, it was the same character, right? But I guess I didn't, Maybe I didn't know or I didn't pick up on the fact that there was going to be a different actress playing her at the time. Right. It's not like we had the Internet, you know, where you oh, could, yeah. you'd know about stuff months in advance. I mean, we had we had Starlog magazine and a couple of other genre magazines to give us this sort of coming attractions type info for films, you know, but you didn't have the instant access to this sort of stuff that you do now. Um, so I don't know that I picked up on that right away. I yeah. know I know that I I did know it was going to be Savick and David Marcus picking up from Star Trek Two and going to the planet, but I didn't know going in that it was going to be a different actress. Right, right. Well, very cool. Yeah, I did read the novelization first because I was wondering where all that cool stuff was that was in the novelization that wasn't in the film. Yeah, <laughs> there were like several chapters in the beginning of the film that are all stuff that the author put in. Vonda McIntyre, she wrote all this stuff as. You know, before we actually get to the events of the film, she's got all this cool stuff that she laid in um, that never made the screen. I don't know if it was even in an early version of the script that they cut. I, I don't know if she had an early version or if she just made it all up to to fill out a novel. I, I don't know. I have to look that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's interesting. All right. Well, uh, any final thoughts on this movie? I mean, how do you... Uh Looking back on it, if we were to evaluate this out of five stars, where do you where do you place it, Miles? Um, 
I would I would give it four stars. I I I think I really like this film. I I think what it contributed to building the world in Star Trek, the contributions are are huge. I mean, we when we talk about the ships, uh, the the, the the space dock uh, we see these things later on they're, they're used in subsequent Star Trek movies but they're also used in in uh, next next generation D space nine uh, we see we see these they, they 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 make good use of these models uh, in, in in later movies and shows so but as far as just what the movie itself definitely four stars uh, I love watching it again but uh, I, I even choked up a little at the end when, when uh, Spock is acknowledging, uh, you know, the crew. It's it's very brief, and, and if you're not if 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 you, if you don't believe Spock has emotions, you you blow it off. But you know he does have feelings. That this, it, he, he just just the way he acknowledges everybody in that one scene, and at the end, everybody kind of comes up to him. Um, they don't hog them because you know there's personal space issues, but it's still it's still very touching, and so love this love this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Dayton, how about you? Where do you uh, how do you rate this movie when you look back on it? Uh I it's it's I give it probably it's an easy three, maybe three and a half out of four. You know, it's or three. Yeah, it's 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 a solid flick. It's it's you know definitely middle of the pack in terms of all of them. Um, but like Miles said, you know, it, looking back on it in hindsight, it, it did contribute a lot of stuff that we continue to see in future Star Trek productions. Uh, not just the, the models and the props and the costumes, but just, you know, concepts that we'll, we'll see again. Um, even sometimes, and some of that stuff might not even come back until, you know, the next generation. Um, and in hindsight, I think we can probably look to this film as the point where Star Trek turned into an actual franchise, you know, where oh, they yeah. knew there was going to be a fourth movie right? and they knew there was going to be merchandising and they knew that this other stuff was going to keep going. And, and of course, you know, next generation is still a couple of years away at this point. Right. Um, but I really think this is the point where the studio said we have our own thing that we can now make a summer tentpole movie you know, from or whatever, even though they, they were all over the map as far as when they released these things. I think that's how they, that's when they finally started looking at this as a viable, you know, franchise for the, for, for the, for the big screen. Right. No, no. So I, in that I, regards, yeah. it's just definitely, you know, it definitely pulls its weight in terms right. of what it lends to what we now know as the Star Trek franchise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. I think I would probably put it at a 3.5 or four out of five. As well, uh, maybe for some of the same reasons, I do think it comes across as a solid movie, and I don't pan it the way I hear some people pan it. Um, I think there is again better Star Trek. I think there is worse Star Trek, and oh. but but this is but this this whole this for me when I watched it, I got lost in the story again, and the fact that it was able to do that, you know, so many years after it came out. Um, I think this this that says something to me, and uh, I I think it's one of the better character stories. I would agree, yeah. agreed, agreed. Um, 
I mean, a lot of the stuff we talked about tonight was about the characters. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, there was there were some decent action pieces, but I think the, you know the heart of this movie is the is the characters and their relationships, the, the you know the, the bond that that brings them together and and keeps them together, um, and it's not necessarily something we're going to see again really i mean not we, it's it's downplayed a little bit in the fourth film and in the fifth film as much heat as that movie gets um there are scenes on that film that are they can only work because of these actors and the relationships they've built over working together for so many years absolutely you know um but and, and I think a little bit of that is on display here too. You, know, you 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 can buy that these people are 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 longtime friends and 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 care for each other. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dayton, before we uh, before we go, let's find out again if you can just remind us where can people find you and uh, in, in in more about the books that you write and uh, and 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 support you through your writing endeavors. Well, thank you. Um, you may find me on the web at DaytonMoore.com. That is my social media launch pad. Uh, right. All things internet banality start there. Yeah, and you're on, of course, the Twitter, the Facebook, and everything else. So. There are links to all of that. I'm on the Twitters and the Book of Face and the Instagrams, and um, I think those. I think I cut it off there. Uh, I, I no no Pinterest? No Pinterest? Not Pinterest, no. <laughs> uh, not Pinterest. Don't have a Tumblr. Yeah. Um, and I don't do Snapchat. Yeah. So, and I don't do uh, Tinder. So, sorry. About that. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, uh, swipe left, yeah. swipe left, right? Swipe left, swipe left, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, very good. Well, thank you so much, Dayton, for, uh, for joining us tonight as we uh, chatted about the search for Spock. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. I want to watch the movie again. Oh, there we go. Yeah, go back and see what we missed, right? Um, yeah. yeah, well, uh, you can do that after we're off the show here. Um, okay. Yeah, no, no, there we go. Um, well, I believe that's it. And uh, in a month, we are going to be, of uh, course, we're winding The Voyage Home. I cannot wait for that movie. And, uh, and, uh, and we'll be talking about that. So make sure you watch it here in the next month. And we would love to hear your thoughts both about uh, you know what we said here regarding the search for Spock. And if you're watching The Voyage Home with us, you can email us at the sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. You can always message us on the Twitter or the Facebook, and, uh, and we'll get back to you, and uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. But I think that's about it. Any other thoughts, Miles, before we wrap it up? No, I think we, we covered a movie good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe that's it. Why don't you take us out of the show? All right, till next time, good night and good luck. We will see ya. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. How you been, Dayton? Not bad, you guys. How are yeah, you guys yeah, doing? We're, we're good. We're good. Em had to, uh, she got dumped on with a crap load of work tonight, so she's not with us. So. Oh, sure. That's the excuse. She just yeah, didn't want to hang out. She said, Dayton's going to be on the show. I am so out of here. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. <laughs> yeah, fine. Fine, be that way. Yeah, fine. I'll just write you a novel and kill you off. Right? Good. There you go. That's right. 
Uh, what's <laughs> what's the term for that again? I've heard it before. What's there's a name for that? Uh, uh, you mean when you uh, for using somebody naming somebody after a real person? Yeah. Oh, it's called Tucker Tuckerizing. Tuckerizing, and uh, yeah. It's yeah. named after a guy named Tucker, a science fiction writer who used to do that. Oh, okay. So, or made a habit of it, apparently. I don't know the whole story, but... Oh, there you go. That's... Yeah, well, it is kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Uh, you know, if you run to an author, they use your name. It's like, ooh, look, my name's in the book. And then they get, and, you, then you, <laughs> and then you get killed off. You're like, oh, okay, great. That's what he really thinks of me. No, but... <laughs> Uh, but we're really glad you can join us tonight, being one of the uh, foremost Trek experts out there. Oh, wow. Is that what we're calling me now? Yeah, cool. Yeah. Is that what the question <laughs> Sweet. Well, you, we haven't elevated you to Dr. Trek. That's Larry Nevincheck. That's his title. Oh, okay. But, All right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just come up with a under that. suitable nickname. Yeah. You know, the, uh, what, what sort of nickname can we come up with for Dayton as far as Star Trek is? Call me Trek Yoda. That'll Trek. blow people. Brains. Oh yeah, let's call that, the teams it. and mix our drinks and everything. That's great, cool. Trek Yoda. Got it. We'll, yeah, across we'll the streams. Yeah, there, there we go. But that's okay. Uh, we're Mixing gonna... our drinks and everything. <laughs> there you go. All right, are we ready to go, Miles? So which one do you hate the worst? I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I. You know, I don't know that I hate any of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like some more than others, but I could find something to like in all of them. I, you know, and I, and I agree uh, with that. I did a rewatch of all the movies probably three, four years ago. Maybe, be, maybe even more than that. It may have been longer than that. But I, I really enjoyed watching all of them. So. I mean, my. I mean, I. My favorites bounce around. I mean, I, I think Star Trek Two is probably the most solid of them all. But you know, I'll watch Star Trek. I'll watch the first one uh, as often as I watch any of the other ones. I still think it's the biggest, the big, the biggest in terms of themes and storylines. It's still the best Star Trek film. May right. not have been the best executed, but it was the one that reached you know the highest, right? In my yeah. opinion, yeah. Um, not saying that it succeeded, but it you know it certainly it certainly tried to swing for the fences and be something more than a TV show. Um, and the other ones, I love them all to varying degrees. But you know, it's obvious that they were saddled with a lot of 
budgetary issues. It's like, you know, and I know that some of them didn't perform as well as others. And so, of course, the studio responds by giving them less money for the next one. And it becomes a diminishing return situation at some point. Um, but my favorite, I love, I love the, 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 the last part of Star Trek six, you know, the sign off. Oh, yeah. I, I still get a little choked up when that, when that runs, uh, to this day. I remember seeing that in the theater the first time thinking, you know, that's, that's when you know that Star Trek you grew up with is actually over forever. Hmm. You know what I mean? And it's never going to be the same after that. Yeah, Absolutely. Even though we'd had next gen for a few years at this point, and you know, and 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 they had at by that point proven themselves, it's still my Star Trek that's coming to an end on the screen. So of course you get choked up a little bit. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for chatting with us, and uh, we got to get going here. But uh, appreciate you hanging yeah. out with us tonight. 